0: Hello and welcome everybody. Um, I am Diane Perrins. I'm the new director of the Gender Institute here at the LSE and um, it's my very great pleasure to uh, see you all here, to see new students. I imagine some of our new students are here, uh, our staff who are present and as well as some distinguished guests and visitors. Uh, Welcome everyone. Uh, to our first public lecture that will be given by uh, Professor Naila Kabir. And we're delighted to be able to welcome Naila to the Gender Institute and to the LSE as a whole. Uh, Naila is our new professor in gender and development. Uh, and we're particularly pleased that she's arrived this year because this year is a very, very special one for us. Uh, It's our 20th anniversary, so um, something for us to celebrate. Surviving in gender studies for 20 years is uh, quite an achievement, I think, though I say it myself, Uh, thanks to colleagues and people who've been working (laughs) here. Uh, Okay, so Professor Kabir, then, uh, as you all probably know, which is why you're here, is a prolific researcher and writer. Uh, She writes on gender, poverty, social exclusion labour markets and livelihoods, social protection and citizenship, uh, with a particular focus on South and Southeast Asia. Uh, Professor Kabir has worked for a whole range of international institutions, including uh, UNDP, UNICEF, uh, the World Bank, uh, CEDA, NORAD and UN Women. Um, She's also worked for a whole range of NGOs, including Oxfam, ActionAid, uh, Brak, PRADAN, uh, and, and many more. Um, she's also written many, many academic books and articles, uh, so many that I can't mention them all, but some of my favourites include uh, The Power to Choose, uh, Reversed Realities, uh, Can the MDGs Provide a Pathway to Justice? And most recently, together with Ratna Sudarshan and, and Kirsty Millwood, Organising Women Workers in the Informal Economy Beyond the Weapons of the Weak. Um, What perhaps characterises Professor Kabir's work uh, is her passionate concern with gender, poverty, resistance and justice. And these issues will be addressed in tonight's lecture, which is concerned with tracking the gender politics of the Millennium Development Goals, uh, from the Millennium Declaration to the post-MGD consultations. So please join me in welcoming Nyla Kabir to the Gender Institute in the LSE. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, this is my second day at LSE. Uh, uh, But it's not, you know, I was here as an undergraduate student and as a PhD student and a very special time in my life. Uh, And I was trying to work out why, and I think there are two reasons. One is, of course, LSE is a wonderful institute. And secondly, I was young, and I think the two are a very lovely combination. (laughs) So today... um, I'm going to be talking about the Millennium Development Goals, and if anyone hasn't heard of them, you will know what they are by the time I finish my talk, but I'm not going to define them at this moment. Now, the MDGs, according to Van der Moetle, are the most broadly supported, comprehensive, and specific poverty reduction targets that the world has ever established. And David Hume calls them the world's biggest promise, A global agreement to reduce poverty and human deprivation at historically unprecedented rates through collaborative multilateral action. So we're not talking about something very trivial here. What I'd like to do here is to discuss what this promise has meant from a gender perspective. I want to track how the MDGs have featured in the goals themselves and what this tells us about the understanding of gender equality that informs these goals. And secondly, I want to track the politics that gave rise to these particular interpretations and how feminists have engaged with this process. But in order to do so, I'm afraid I'm going to have to rewind a bit and go back to the decade before the MDGs were actually adopted in 2000. If we go back to 1989 and the events of Eastern Europe, which marked, if you like, the official end of the Cold War, this also paved the way for a very different discourse on rights. Um, instead of the Cold War tensions between economic and social rights on the one hand promoted by the West and political and, uh, sorry, uh, social and economic rights promoted by the socialist Bloc, and political and civil rights promoted by the West, we found ourselves in a territory where there was possible to think about the indivisibilit- indivisibility of rights. And this new discourse was consolidated through a series of conferences and I've named some of them on the PowerPoint, the, Rio Summit, the, the New York Summit for Children, the Rio Summit on Environment, the World Conference on Population and Development, Cairo, in 1994, uh, the Rio Conference on, on Rights in 1993 in Vienna, the World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995, World Conference Against Racism in 2001. Now, feminists played a very, very active role in all of these conferences and in this process of consolidation. The series of women's conferences that had taken place since 1975, the first women's conference, you know, the, the, the uh, amount of support that women's organizations got as a part of this UN process around UN conferences for women, all of these had built up a very strong lobby of feminists at the international level. Um, While the early conferences had been marked by considerable tension on a north-south basis, this started to abate over time. Uh, A number of reasons are women were meeting each other over a period of time and they had time to sort out some of their differences. Secondly, by the late 1980s, with the spread of neoliberal policies across the world and the dismantling of state structures for social policy, Feminists from the north and south found themselves coming together around a common agenda of economic justice. And finally, I think what served to to unify feminists was the antagonism that they encountered to many aspects of their agenda from an unholy alliance, and this is how it is referred to in the literature, which was led by the Vatican and supported by a handful of Islamic states, later joined by the neo-Christian Neo-conservative Christian lobby in the U.S. with support every now and again from Republican presidents in the U.S. Now the Vatican has a very special status at the U.N. It is a non-member state observer which gives it a considerable advantage over feminist organizations. It cannot vote in the General Assembly or in any of the committees, but it can otherwise participate on an almost equal basis with country delegations. The Vatican's strategy has been to support a discourse of economic justice, presenting itself as a defender of the world's poor and aligning itself with southern countries in their demands for poverty reduction, fairer trade, debt cancellation. However, its position on body politics has brought it into headlong confrontation with feminist organizations. Now, initially it did not seem that all aspects of body politics encountered the same degree of opposition from the Vatican. A very massive and highly successful international mobilization by feminists around the idea of women's rights as human rights and violence against women as a specific category of women's rights went through the Vienna Conference in 1993 without too much of opposition from the Vatican. It may have been, I think, as Charlotte Buncher said, that it was not aware that this agreement about women's rights as human rights would be used as a springboard for feminist interventions in later conferences. However, right from the outset, issues of reproduction and sexuality have provoked the myriad proposals and counter-proposals, the drafting and redrafting of texts, the square bracketing and unbracketing, which is how you express your reservations in the UN. This is the form that clashes of values and interests take at UN conferences. They take the form of these... Massive writing and rewriting and texts and redrafting. Now, the clashes of the 1990s had major implications for the way in which gender was subsequently framed, the MDGs, and so I want to spend a bit of time discussing it. Until the nine I want to start with the Cairo Conference. Until, 19, until the 1990s, governments, academics, and others had conceptualized reproductive issues in terms of the link between population growth and economic development, swinging from the neo Malthusianism. Uh, of the population control agenda, which was very focused on reducing women's fertility rates with the blithe catchphrase of uh, the population conference in Bucharest in 1974 that you don't need family planning, development is the best contraceptive. Feminist reproductive politics, on the other hand, was concerned with women's right to control their own bodies. Although there was some difference in emphasis, feminists in the North had been active around access to safe contraception and abortion, while feminists in the South were concerned with the single-minded, frequently coercive efforts to promote contraception and sterilization. However, a process of intensive dialogue over the years brought them together around a common agenda. And they homed in on the Cairo Conference as a means for exerting pressure on their own governments. There was a great deal of prior preparation for this task and some of this preparation involved negotiations around language and they revealed to us the value-laden nature of some of the key terminology uh, in in the whole feminist uh, discourse around reproduction. In, In particular, the tensions between the qualifying adjectives of sexual and reproductive on the one hand and between the associated nouns of needs health, and rights on the other. Sonia Correa has pointed out that the the terminology of reproduction, health, and needs carries connotations of respectable behavior and finds its way with relative ease into UN documents. The language of sexuality and rights, on the other hand, has more radical connotations, is redolent of all kinds of misbehavior by Bolshe women, and such terminology generates a great deal of unease within the UN's corridors of power. Amongst feminists themselves, there was a great deal of tension. Feminists in the North had with considerable ease adopted the language of reproductive rights in their struggles for safe uh, abortion and contraception, but many feminists in the South had preferred the language of reproductive health to express the reality of women's health needs over the individualism that they associated with the notion of rights. However, the distance between health and rights began to close when it became clear that an agenda defined by reproductive health alone lent itself very easily to semantic cooperation and uh, the uh, re-wording of conventional family planning programs. It seemed that unifying health and rights would strengthen the movement's agenda of improving women's reproductive lives. But the distance between sexual health and sexual rights was far harder to close. Sexual health remains the more acceptable of these, as far as institutions are concerned. And in particular, it had found its way into UN documents as a result of the HIV AIDS pandemic. And WHO had had adopted the language of sexual health and reproductive health quite early on in the 1990s. But the political and discursive evolution of sexual rights reflected a far more radical struggle within society itself conceptual struggles amongst feminists, particularly in the US, Europe, and Latin America, who had begun to question the nature of the relationship between sex and gender, and political struggles by the gay and lesbian community against sexual discrimination and for the right to sexual self-determination. At issue here, of course, were very unquestioned uh, boundaries about sex, gender, nature, culture, and so on. And these were debates that did not travel as easily across the world, not only because they appeared to have destabilizing implications for the way in which sexuality and reproduction was organized in society at large, but because they also questioned some of the taken for granted assumptions within feminism itself. So by the time Cairo came along, there was some degree of consensus around reproductive health and rights, but sexual rights was still the new kid on the block as far as the whole rights articulation was concerned. And it was not really mentioned in the discussions until the eve of Cairo. Now at Cairo, feminists were fortunate because we had a very dynamic woman from Pakistan, Nafiz Sadiq, who was both a self-professed feminist as well as a, a gynecologist with experience in rural Pakistan. And she was able to provide very dynamic leadership for the conference. However, the Holy See led the opposition. Five months before Cairo Pope uh, Pope John Paul had written to all heads of UN nations to say that ICPD, the International Declaration at Cairo, would produce a serious setback for all of humanity. And at the last Preparatory Committee Conference in 1994, just before Cairo, it square bracketed the term reproductive health in the document that was going to be discussed 112 times. At the conference itself, it had 17... 18 official members, making it larger than many country delegations. It managed to negotiate an alliance between uh, Iran and Libya, which meant it had support within the UN for its bracketing, its square bracketing of text. However, its main concern was to keep abortion off the agenda, whereas the Islamic countries were worried about getting family planning to adolescents. Once the idea of sexual rights was dropped from the feminist demands within Cairo, the holy alliance, the unholy alliance, (laughs) broke down. And uh, an extremely uh, progressive declaration was made possible, although the Vatican joined with partial reservations, uh, square bracketing about 10% of the final document. Now the fact that a group of men, aging men, sworn to celibacy, without member status at the UN, were able to block the proceedings of this conference, clearly attracted hostile attention. The Egyptian population minister at the time said at a news conference, does the Vatican rule the world? We are not here, the world is not here to be dictated to. We represent more than five billion people opposed to the 190 at the Vatican. And as the Financial Times and others pointed out, Unlike other states that have to govern people with health problems and formulated population policies, the Vatican in Cairo was there to defend religion. And it was not moderated by the influence of a domestic polity, by the need to be elected, or by political pressure to maintain friendly relations with other nations. The second round came at the Fourth World Conference in Beijing, which again was a historic event. Um, It represented an international movement whose members were present and active not only in the NGO forum that accompanied Beijing, the official conference, but also part of the official delegations. Present also and active at Beijing was the Vatican. This time its delegation was led by Mary Ann Glendale, who was a professor of law at Harvard and signaling that the Vatican had absolutely no problems with uh, women taking political leadership in the public domain. The the platform for action that was agreed at Beijing was one of the most contested of all UN conferences. This time, the contestations revolved around the very concept of gender, which was interpreted by religious conservatives as a code for the disruption of cherished cherished certainties about human relations. Signs of the backlash was already evident at the final PREPCOM meeting in April when the representative from Honduras proposed to square bracket the word gender Throughout the text, within the conference itself, there was a moment when two paragraphs had generated 31 amendments. (laughs) A working group finally found a, a definition of gender that seemed to be acceptable. Despite all these divisions, the fact that the platform for action spelled out a very ambitious and transformative agenda is testimony to the remarkable negotiating skills and efforts of feminists within and outside the official conference. Beijing spelt out a, um, I hope I have this on the, yes, principle of shared and responsibility between men and women at home workplace and in the wider community. It spelt out 12 critical areas uh, which it believed were essential to address to, to address the subordinate position of women across the world. These areas had been chosen because they represented the underlying and intersecting causalities that lead to the Uh, subordination of women, and as you will see, they cover both sexual, reproduction, and economic issues. The Vatican, once again, expressed its reservations. In her statement, the head of the delegation combined the Pope's ring endorsement of women's liberation with a very interesting critique of the concept of rights contained in the conference document. The Pope, she said, applauded the assumption of new roles by women, stressed the extent to which cultural conditioning had been an obstacle to women's progress, and exhorted men to assist in the great process of of women's liberation. As far as the platform for action was concerned, the delegation believed that the living heart of these documents lay in their section on the needs of women in poverty, on strategies for development, literacy, and education, on ending violence against women. However, She said, my delegate regrets to note that in the text there is an exaggerated individualism in which key provisions of the universal declaration of human rights are slighted, for instance, by failing to the obligation to provide special care and assistance to motherhood. This selectivity, she went on to say, marks another step in the colonization of the broad and rich discourse of universal rights by an impoverished libertarian rights dialect, So the Pope was accusing the feminists at uh, Beijing of libertarianism. She said, surely we must do more for women and girls than leave them alone with their rights. They also placed a general reservation on the section on health. This section devotes a totally unbalanced attention to sexual and reproductive health in comparison to women's other health needs including the means to address maternal mortality and morbidity. Moreover, the Holy See cannot accept ambiguous terminology concerning the unqualified control over sexuality and fertility, particularly as it could be interpreted as societal endorsement of abortion or homosexuality. And it pointed out that the Beijing conference had no mandate to introduce any new rights. And any new rights, by the way, was code for sexual rights. Now I've gone into some detail on the sound and fury that accompanied these encounters by feminists and religious conservatives in the 1990s because it was a contrast to the completely deafening silence amongst feminists with the parallel process that led to the MDGs. Let me now turn to those and start with the fact that alongside the rights agenda in the 1990s was the emergence of the human development paradigm Structural adjustment policies had uh, set back many countries as far as social progress was concerned without delivering on growth, leading to the 1980s being described as a lost decade for Africa and Latin America. Critiques of these policies draw attention to their human costs and in 1990, influenced by the work of, of Amartya Sen, the Human Development Report was brought out by the UN and it challenged the idea that you could measure progress purely in terms of per capita income. And it called for attention to the human development, human dimensions of well being and freedom. However, the 1990s, as we saw, was also the end of the the Cold War. And with it, less pressure on rich countries to keep poorer countries within the orbit of Western influence. The result was the onset of what is called aid fatigue and a steady decline in official development assistance. It was to counter this trend that at the same year 95 which saw a large and diverse group of women gathering in Beijing there was a meeting by a small and largely male group who were members of the OECD's Development Assistance Committee and they met in Paris to discuss what they could do to counter aid fatigue Over the coming year, they drew up a list of all the UN uh, uh, commitments that had been made through the conferences and identified those that fell within the OECD DAX frame of reference. This list of targets, it identified seven seven development targets uh, and headed by reducing extreme poverty, signaling the commitment to continued economic growth, followed by social development, followed by the environment. Gender as you see did not feature very very strongly with gender equality and women's empowerment captured through parity in primary and secondary education by 2015. However, it had maternal mortality to be reduced and access to reproductive health services for all appropriate ages. The OECD-DAC group are largely representing Europe. They do not have strong religious Catholic or Muslim constituencies and so they were able to get through reproductive health and services without too much effort. And the only other country that could have objected, which was the US, had Clinton in the White House and he was committed to Cairo. What was also striking about the OECD document was that unlike the declarations that ended the UN conferences, it was characterized by the influence of what is called results-based management. In other words, the use of management and auditing tools, which have been imported from the private sector into the public sector and the aid business, in order to demonstrate how results are achieved through the objective measurement and monitoring of the performance of those who receive aid. So what we have are goals, targets and indicators within a time-bound period and this was useful to demonstrate to the people who are giving aid that aid was going to be used in an effective way. What it did of course was to rule out human rights, democracy and participation those open-ended, non-linear processes that had featured in so much of the UN uh, declarations. However, the International Development Goals did not receive very much attention outside of the OECD countries and the international financial institutions. It was all far too secretive and too technical, I think, to capture the imagination of the public. The late 1990s also saw preparations in the UN for the World Summit, for the Millennium World Summit. And this was an opportunity for people within the UN to draw up an agenda which would capture and place development back at the center of the UN, as opposed to it being driven by humanitarian aid and uh, conflict and so on. They too looked at the past uh, commitments of the UN conferences and they drew up their own list. Their list was influenced by who was present on that group. So I read an article recently by Mark Malak Brown, who was one of the architects, who said they forgot to put environment on their list but he had gone out of the room and he bumped into the head of the person who leads on environment at the UN and so he rushed back into the the room and put environment as goal number 7. However, UNIFEM and UN Division for the Advancement of Women, the two uh, groups leading on gender issues in the UN, were not present. I'm not sure um, exactly what that provisional list was, uh, but there were three things that were were missing from it that were on the international development goals of the the, um, OECD. Missing from the UN list was um, reproductive health. Missing was gender equality and women's empowerment, and missing was any reference to health issues apart from HIV AIDS. What it did emphasize much more than the DAC document was uh, environment, growth, uh, the special needs of Africa and a special goal to get rich countries to be more accountable to the poor. The Millennium Summit had not loomed very large on the feminist agenda, but the Vatican was indeed very active. And in the preparatory meeting, in the the prior meetings, it made sure that reproductive health did not make it onto the UN agenda. So, the Millennium Millennium, um, Summit took place in September 2000, brought together 189 heads of government, received a great deal more public attention than the DAC meeting because of the symbolic nature of the meeting and the number of heads of government, and it spells out what Hume has called the um, biggest promise that we have made on poverty. Framed by a strong commitment to human rights and social justice couched in gender-inclusive language, men and women have the right to live their lives and raise their children in dignity, free from hunger and free from violence, oppression, or injustice. what was very interesting is that there was some overlap between the goals that the UN had drawn up and the goals that DAC had drawn up and in order not to have too much discrepancy between these two lists the UN document has a very interesting uh, uh, mechanism it begins the paragraph on development and poverty reduction by we resolve and it has lots of broad commitments then it goes on to we also resolve and there you have the commitments on which both DAC and the UN have agreed and then you have, we further resolve. So there are ways in which they were signaling that there were certain goals on which they could act immediately, there was agreement, but there were others that they could not act on until there had been uh, consensus. So uh, maternal mortality and the gender equality empowerment Women's empowerment was back, but in a very instrumental way, as effective to combat poverty, hunger, and disease. But interestingly, it had. We resolved, therefore, to combat all forms of violence against women and to implement the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So, it left people with um, mixed feelings. We were glad to see violence was on the agenda. Sorry to see that women's empowerment had kind of disappeared to somewhere, uh, was relegated to the non-implementables. But the next step was a roadmap. And when this roadmap to how we do we implement the Millennium Development Goals took place, it became clear that the International Development Goals were going to be the model. The goals were fewer, they were measurable, they were concrete, and most importantly, they had the backing of the most powerful players in the development business the uh, OECD countries and the international financial institutions. So by the time we got the Millennium Development Goals, they started to look very much like the International Development Goals. Um, We got promoting gender equality and women's empowerment back onto the agenda. It was now part of the goals forefronted. Very much still uh, articulated in terms of education, but there were indicators that talked not only about indication, but also women's share of waged work in non-agricultural employment and women's share of parliamentary seats. There was uh, attention to maternal health, nothing on reproductive health and services. And then goal number eight was uh, developing a global partnership for development. The interesting thing about goal number eight is it's where you were asking the rich countries to participate in this process. But it was the only goal without any targets, no time bound, no indicators, nothing. It was open-ended. Apart from the references in gender equality and women's empowerment and maternal health, the rest of the MDGs were formulated in very generic terms. The poor, children, uh, people with HIV AIDS. And anyone who's worked in the development business knows that in this area, unless you specifically name women and girls, they tend to get left out. So it was very worrying, this very generic language. And of course, there was no provision in goal Number eight, on global partnerships for participation by civil society, including by women's organizations. So not surprisingly, so this was goal number three, promoting gender equality and women's empowerment, and these were the indicators. So not surprisingly, um, feminists met the MDGs with huge dismay. Not only were they unhappy about the process, the closed nature of the process through which it uh, it took place, but they were very unhappy that neither Beijing, nor Cairo, nor Rio seemed to feature at all in the Millennium Development Goals. In fact, there was a report brought out by the Women in Development Weedle, which was called Beijing Betrayed. And that's how many people saw the MDGs as Beijing Betrayed. And Peggy Antrobus had said at a meeting of the Caribbean Uh, group on the MDGs in 2003, she called the MDGs a most distracting gimmick. And she said it was a most distracting gimmick because it distracted us from the much more important platforms of the 1990s. However, as we know, feminists had to get up, shake themselves down, and start to engage. It was pointed out that we have to work with what we've got. And Peggy Antrobus came back to this topic in 2005 and said, the MDGs May allow us to, to get access to those policymakers who do not normally listen to women's issues. There's enough in the MDGs for us to find an opening. Um, and she went on to say, Ooh, I've lost my place. And she went on to say that gender equality was critical to the achievement on all of the MDGs, but that had not been noted. That was the hidden subtext. Women's unpaid work was important for education, for maternal mortality, for HIV AIDS, and so on, but none of these had been acknowledged in the document. More specifically, if we look at MDG 3, she pointed out that education in the Caribbean, women have higher levels of education than men. This has not led to better work opportunities, a closing of the gender gap in, education, in, in, in employment, nor has it led to women's greater participation in political leadership. So education on its own, is not likely to lead to all these other uh, achievements. They also asked what the MDG on women's empowerment meant. Um, what does... Closing the gender gap in education tell us about the quality of the education that people receive, girls and boys, what they have learned and what opportunities they get. What does women's share of parliament tell us about how they got there, were they nominated, were they elected, and can we assume that they will now act in the interests of gender equality? We cannot. And finally, women's share of wage employment. What does it tell us about the quality of the employment that women are getting, particularly at a time when the global economy is characterized by growing informalization of work? So there were a great deal of problems about all the silences on MDG3 and on the others. However, an important opportunity emerged when Jeffrey Sachs joined the Earth Institute at Columbia University and started the Millennium Project and very soon after that, he was asked by the Secretary General to become uh, a special adviser on implementing the MDGs. The advantage of this was the Millennium Project was not a UN project. It was funded by, do- by donors and foundations and therefore it could come up with its agenda without the kind of politically charged atmosphere of UN General Assemblies, but its leader had direct access to the Secretary General. Three of the task of the seven or eight task forces that were set up by the Millennium Project, all highlighted sexual and reproductive rights as critical to achieving the MDGs. Obviously the one on gender equality, but also the one on maternal mortality and child mortality, and the one on HIV-AIDS. So each of them reinforced each other's messages, The one on maternal mortality is actually a very brilliant document. It's it's called Who's Got the Power and it uses the idea of sexual and reproductive rights as its central organizing concept, making it impossible to not acknowledge the importance of sexual and reproductive rights in the MDGs. The the PINSA movement of these three task forces was successful. At the General Assembly in 2005, when the Millennium Project uh, submitted its uh, report, the General Assembly adopted sexual and reproductive rights as, uh, as, as one of the as, as a commitment, and it became MDG 5b in 2008. So, through this kind of rather complicated process, reproductive. Um, uh, universal access to reproductive health became a part of the MDGs. And the other big success was that uh, the goal on poverty reduction, which is goal number one, had not referred in any way to employment. And again in 2005 or 2006, they, they adopted a goal on productive employment and decent work for all, including women and young people. However, these achievements or these gains within the MDG process has to be offset against the war of words and the kind of struggles for interpretive power that these uh, embodied. that was going on everywhere else. The Vatican, joined by some of the Islamic states, now joined by the Bush in the White House and the Christian evangel- evangelists in the US, were carrying out a rearguard action in the uh, what are called the the Beijing plus 5, the Beijing plus 10 reviews, the Cairo plus 5, Cairo plus 10 reviews, which are meetings where you review what was agreed and look for uh, implementation ideas, uh, you know, monitor implementation. A very important forum for these war of words was the Commission for the Status of Women, which had been set up at the end of the, around 47, 48, met every year around February and always concluded with some agreed conclusions which... Picked on particular themes uh, that the UN Commission of Women was going to support. Since Beijing, it had been picking up on the themes related to the Beijing platform. And what we found is, what we find is that this became a major arena for the struggles over sex and reproduction. Um, the Vatican is the constant factor in this, but it is joined by a shifting alliance of Muslim states, Catholic states, and every now and again the U.S. So, for instance, in the 47th session, which was, I think, the first that ended without an agreement. Um, the proposed text was to condemn violence against women and refrain from invoking any custom, traditional, religious consideration to avoid obligations where Iran put in and refrain from invoking freedom of expression to justify such manifestations of violence against women's pornography and democracy to justify prostitution. The problem with this is it was not agreed language. Up till now, the strategy of CSW, the Commission, was to stick to the language that had been agreed by the UN General Assembly. And this was attempts to change that language. The US led on several attempts to weaken human rights language and delete all references to the commission for this uh, discrimination against women and for the international conventions of the child, which are both conventions with the US as one of the few countries not to have signed. Um, uh, A key strategy was not to allow the addition of anything that was regarded as a new right for which of course we read sexual rights. Uh, CSW had decided not to have a Beijing plus 10 review, but to treat the the 49th session of the CSW as a form of Beijing plus 10. And it tried to get the whole uh, Beijing platform right, reaffirmed by this session with no ifs, no buts, no ands every single country in the prior consultations agreed with the exception of one, and that was the United States who wanted to add, as long as we recognize that they do not create any new international human rights and they do not include the right to abortion. This held up CSW and I was there actually at that time and at the very last minute, the United States withdrew its amendment and I remember the huge cheer that went up in the hall and the rumor was that Hillary Clinton had rung Condoleezza Rice and said, listen, Get your people to behave, but you know, who knows. <laughs> the 56th session, and, and it's very interesting around um, the kinds of things that the objections are for. The Vatican, Iran, and Russians wanted to replace early marriage with child marriage, which others didn't want, because child marriage, the definition of child can include, uh, uh, you know, anyone under nine. And you can, you know, have marriages of people beyond nine. The Vatican wanted to remove all references to reproductive and sexual rights. Sadek wanted to reaffirm the central role of family in reducing vulnerability to HIV AIDS, which people said there's no evidence for. The Vatican and Russians uh, opposed to uh, negotiating safer sex, and so on and so forth. And on violence, I had thought after Vienna that nobody objected in Vienna because actually nobody could object to the issue of violence against women, but I was wrong. I think they were not prepared in Vienna. They were prepared now. So we get attempts in the 57th session, again with the Vatican, and then a group of 17 countries, including Bangladesh, I'm sorry to say, but also including Russia, which sought to dilute language around violence. Um, They didn't like the idea of early enforced marriage. They wanted to have child marriage. They didn't like uh, intimate partner violence because that covers too many different kinds of violence. They wanted domestic violence and they would not tolerate the idea of protection against violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity because they said these people do not exist and they didn't want to have any protection for sex workers. Around this time, and this was in March of this year, the Muslim Brotherhood issued its commentary on the document and it said that it would lead to the complete disintegration of society and so on. As you can see, a lot of it is preoccupations with sex, but also with economics. It was, it objected to equal inheritance between men and women. It didn't like the idea of replacing guardianship with partnership and full sharing of roles within the family. It didn't like the idea that the authority for divorce should move from husbands and be placed in the hands of judges. And what you can't see at the very bottom there, it didn't like the idea that you no longer might need permission from your husband to travel and open a bank account and so on and so forth. But this was not a clash of civilizations, this was a clash within civilizations because the people who objected to it was the Arab caucus who pointed out that um, their leaders were increasingly using arguments based on religion, culture, tradition, nationality to justify violence. And it said, the denial of the existence of youth and premarital sexuality, extramarital sexuality, sex work, and same-sex practices constitutes a dangerous threat to the well-being and public health of our societies. So, that battle continues, and it is likely to continue. And as we are running up to the end of the MDGs in 2015, I think all of you should watch the spaces as this continues. However... And in fact, the Russians are now trying to introduce the idea of traditional values into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. However, it is interesting at this point, and I'm not quite sure what exactly the new Pope from Argentina has said, but he has been quoting in saying some rather amazing things. We cannot insist only on issues relating to abortion, gay marriage, and the use of contraceptives. This is one of the quotes I got. This is not possible. I have not spoken too much about these things and I've been reprimanded for this. But when we speak about these issues, we have to talk about them in context. The teaching of the church, for that matter, is clear. And I am the son of the church, but it is not necessary to talk about all these issues all of the time. (laughs) The dogmatic and moral teachings of the church are not equivalent. We need to find a new balance. Otherwise, even the moral edifice of the church is likely to fall like a house of cards, losing the freshness and fragrance of the gospel. So I don't know what he exactly said because lots of people <laughs> lots of people have been in there saying you oh, know you've misunderstood it's not what he meant and he has actually come out against abortion and said that this is a throwaway culture so you know we can't be too hopeful but nevertheless I think this man is interesting and I think we can have hope In the meanwhile the MDG's rumble the bandwagon rumbles on we are now taking stock of what has been achieved and as you might imagine progress has been very uneven Uh, greatest progress has been on gender parity in education but as we know it doesn't tell us about quality the the lowest progress most countries are off track for maternal mortality and that really should tell us something why has it been so difficult to to achieve progress on maternal mortality but in any case I think we should ask what this business of being on track and off track actually means because Egypt, Iran, Lebanon, Nepal, Syria, and Yemen are all on track for meeting MDG3, but they're all at the bottom decile of the 2012 Global Gender Gap Index. In other words, it is possible to achieve on education without having achieved on a whole range of other issues. Of course, it's not only in relation to the, uh, the gender equality indicators that there are problems. Um, One interesting one is that uh, Diaz, Martinez and Gibbons have questioned the appropriateness of using an indicator on the proportion of children immunized against measles as a measure of progress on child mortality when measles only accounts for 4% of under 5 child mortality. So you have as your indicator of progress on child mortality something that accounts for 4% of why children die. And the other question has been the way in which the MDGs focus on averages and proportions means that they they give you an average picture that leaves out all those people who are left behind. So you may achieve on the MDGs, but your very poorest may continue to have been left far behind. Then did Peggy Antrobus get a wish about, uh, you know, feminists will get more of the money if we engage with the MDGs? Not really, not really. Gender-focused aid remains at a very low 2-5% to 5% of all bilateral aid, which is the main source of aid for uh, gender projects, and only half of it goes to projects where gender equality is the fundamental objective. How long have I got, Diane? Uh About five minutes. Okay. Uh, only half of these go to where gender equality is the explicit objective. Many of them go where you know, mainstreaming gender and so on. And then, of course, there's an attempt to look ahead Uh, And unlike the deafening silence of the MDGs, we have a cacophony around the post-MDG agenda. There are thousands of consultations, there are thematic dialogues, there's online discussions, there's a survey that so far has been responded to online by over 200,000 people. And then there's the high-level panel made up of 27 eminent people with three co-chairs, of which one is David Cameron. Um, interestingly, the My World survey, which was answered by 200,000 people, identifies there's a considerable convergence around basic needs. They want jobs, they want health, water and sanitation, but they also want good governance. The more abstract um, goals, like uh, climate change and uh, some of the more long term things, are much more at the bottom. UN Women, uh, AWID has done a survey of all these women's organizations, extremely comprehensive and they have identified violence against women, women's political leadership and economic empowerment as their priorities. So obviously there has been a great deal of scrutiny for the report of the uh, high level panel. So I will talk about the plus side and I will come back to the minus side in a minute. On the plus side, we do have a standalone goal on gender equality and women's empowerment, which is something that feminists have been fighting for. It includes violence against women, ending property rights, uh, and uh, sorry, not ending, uh, equalizing property rights, ending women's need to have to get a husband's permission to sign a, a document to open a business, but it also has something called end discrimination against women in public, political, and economic life. And that's a completely meaningless goal. I mean, nobody's going to take any notice of, you know, end discrimination on uh, on public and political life. And we worry about this because it's a waste of a goal. We now know that unless it's something quite concrete, no one is going to act on it. Or everyone will say they're acting on it and it comes under that particular goal. (coughs) Sexual and reproductive health and rights are included in the reports under health rather than under gender equality. But in conclusion, I wanted to make a couple of points, which I think uh, have struck me as, as I was writing this for this lecture. One is as the interest in inequality and in the, in the uh, constituency around inequality has been rising, and as many more marginalized groups, uh, indigenous people, disabled people, etc., are coming, there's a danger that we may lose sight of what is distinctive about gender inequality. And I want to make use of Claire Malibud, and I'm sure she's not going to be very happy with this, but of her comment she made in a blog for The Guardian where she said, gender is is just one more inequality that generates poverty and social exclusion. We don't lose points on gender if we admit that race, class, and ethnicity also play a role in, in in, in creating inequality. Now, obviously, that is true. But in a sense, it is the phrasing of this that seems to pet gender inequality against other inequalities, and that I think is not constructive. First of all, of course, we know that gender inequality does not exist on its own. It is intersects with class, ethnicity, and all the others. And in a report that I did, that Diane mentioned, what we find is when we unpack class, indigenous, ingenuity, and race, we find gender inequality is still relevant. Class, race, etc., do not obliterate gender inequality. So whether we're looking at wages, whether we're looking at income, education, the poorest women, women from indigenous groups, etc., are usually the lowest down on the hierarchy. So gender doesn't disappear. But a second reason, of course, is gender has a foundational status. It cross-cuts the production and reproduction. It cross-cuts um, economy and human development. And therefore, when we neglect gender inequality, we are in danger of of, uh, distorting development. And there's a very nice quote from Gita Sen, which I use very often, that she says that women stand at the crossroads between production and reproduction, economic activity and the care of human beings, and therefore between growth and human development. They are workers in both spheres. those who are most responsible and have most to suffer if the two spheres do not meet together. Now, on the one hand, while feminists shy away from making instrumental arguments, I think we have to point out that investing in gender equality is the possibility of a win win proposition. And I carried out a, 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 a literature review with a, with a colleague to look at all the work that economists have done on gender equality in economic growth. And one factor that comes across all these studies, you know, regardless of the time they use, regardless of. Um, Uh, you know, when they've taken account of endogeneity and reverse causality and all the stuff that econometricians do, gender equality in employment and education continues to be important for economic growth. That's, of course, an argument that relies on women behaving very virtuously, okay? They're very productive in the marketplace and they're very altruistic at home, so they invest their education and their money, etc., in children's welfare. But we could flip that argument and ask, what happens when we don't invest in gender equality? Well, another study I did actually finds that many of the things that demographers in particular are very worried about, uh, the rise of female-headed households in Africa and Latin America, the flight from marriage in East Asia, and what somebody's calling demographic suicide in parts of Europe, as women walk out on marriages, as they refuse to have babies, as they are uh, refuse to get married, etc. at least some part of that reflects a dissatisfaction with what the patriarchal family structure has to offer and the fact that work and care still do not, are still not aligned with each other. I don't have full evidence for that, but I believe very strongly from you know, studies here and there, and I think Sylvia Chant has uh, done some of this work, uh, tells that this is probably likely to be the case. As markets open up, opportunities for women, and as lousy as many of the jobs are, women are being able to exercise choices that they could not do before. So, there are costs to not investing in gender equality. But the other thing that worries me, and this is what I'm going to end on, and that is, when I read through this literature, and you will have noticed it, it is amazing the extent to which... The efforts around defending reproductive and sexual rights have completely uh, dominated over economic and social rights. Whatever we read, it seems that it is uh, is sexual and reproductive rights rather than redistributive justice that has dominated the feminist agenda. And why is this? One reason maybe that sexual and reproductive rights have an immediacy, you know, people dying in abortion. Uh, gays and lesbians being attacked, you know, corrective sex and all of that stuff, it has an immediacy that addressing the macroeconomic agenda and so on doesn't have. It may be that feminists have been very strong on production and reproduction, but not on intersectionality, and this is the point, I think, that made Claire make her comment. So we're very good on what is wrong on the productive side and reproductive side, but we're not that good at working out what it means to be a member of a marginalized economic group who is having to deal with these issues. But I think there is a third issue and that is, and this has been pointed out by Guy Sen, that those countries that have defended sexual and reproductive rights in the international arenas, including the US under Clinton and so on, are very silent on the economic justice agenda. So, They have been happy to work with feminists defending social and reproductive rights but they they have a very hard-nosed approach to anything that questions trade policies, structural adjustment, debt, and so on. So in a sense, feminists have made their allies against the Vatican through people who are not that interested in the economic justice agenda. And so a lot of energy of feminists, and particularly because the Vatican has chosen and, and the, the Unholy Alliance has chosen these topics, much of the energy of feminists has gone to defending Cairo and sexual and reproductive rights and not being able to move forward on the other aspects of the Beijing and the Cairo agenda. So from that point of view and my concluding comment is when we go back to the report of the high-level panel, yes, they've got gender equality as a standalone goal and so on and so forth, But they've also interviewed many, many CEOs of corporations and civil society and the importance that they give to each can be uh, summarized by the fact that corporations are mentioned 180 times in the report of the High Level Panel, government is mentioned 80 times and civil society is mentioned 30 times. We are told that corporations are very willing to work on the uh, the post-MDG agenda, Clean air, good jobs, decent work, and so on. But in return, you know, they want uh, macroeconomic stability and, you know, good sh- infrastructure, and they want, um, you know, skilled workers and so on. But the question is, who will hold the corporations accountable? There is some reference. We know how we can hold the government accountable, especially if they're democratic. But who will hold the corporations accountable? There's some reference to tax avoidance, etc. But in the end, the report ends by saying, we will rely on the willingness of corporations to report on their performance. And that, I think, is a very worrying uh, trend. Okay.
0: Oh, oh, thank you, Nyla, for that very stimulating and thought-provoking lecture. Um, while you're gathering your questions, I should like to point out that after, the, after we've had some questions and answers, uh, there will be a reception in the Gender Institute, uh, which is in Columbia House. There are quite big maps around the uh, LSE at the moment. Basically, it's sort of on the corner of the Garrick Cafe going down into the Oldwich Uh, So we'd be very happy to see you there. Okay, can I have some indication of who would like to make any comments or questions? Okay, I'll take um, a couple together. There's a person just here and someone over there. They disappeared. Yes, at the back there. Thank you.
2: Hello and thank you for your wonderful speech. I have a question. I'm from Germany and in Germany we have a big discussion about whether we should introduce quotas. In, in government and in, in um, companies especially for the leading positions but also maybe for for average positions in the middle level on the middle level, the middle level. Um, what do you think about quotas do you think it should be like a free market where, where the best can can uh, success uh, uh, succeed or do you think that there should be uh, a governmental regulation of uh, gender issues
0: okay so we take the one at the back as well please
3: Um, thank you for that wonderful talk Um, I think one of the examples you you pointed out was in the Caribbean you said that women had uh, better educational uh, qualifications than men and yet whether they weren't able to uh, have the equality in terms of gender health care and wages, and things like that but I'm, I'm wondering Uh, if that's not the case here as well I mean is don't women here tend to get about 30 to 40 percent less in terms of wages for the same role and also in the Parliament I I don't think they are equally represented here as well so I'm wondering that if the strategy uh, should be to kind of get a uh, greater voice in the Parliament so that you could be making those kinds of decisions instead of kind of just uh, Waiting for the Vatican to say something, and then say okay. <laughs> I, I feel like your strategy is 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 maybe something to consider here. So. You
1: want to take this too? Okay. Um, the quota question is always, uh, you know, it's, it's it's got a plus side and a minus side. Um, I think it is generally accepted that if you want to facilitate uh, a fast track. And if you don't want to wait the 70 or 80 years that the Scandinavians had to wait before they got decent uh, representation of women in Parliament, you will have to use quotas. I think what you cannot expect that because women in Parliament have come in through quotas that they will necessarily promote gender equality. Women represent all kinds of different politics and they don't necessarily. However, um, and I think and Phillips' argument here is very good, they are half the population and if they're missing from parliament, then there's something wrong. On corporations and so on, I think, um, I- again, I- the problem of quotas is the backlash, right? And if you push them too hard, there is uh, a likelihood of A, a backlash against, you know, these are not women with merit and B, as in India, you know, the solution to a lot of uh, disadvantage is quotas, And there's a limit to how many different kinds of quotas you can have. So I think quotas are a temporary measure. I think what you do need, and I think you do need them in political decision making, but I think you do need to be working on the structures and barriers that prevent women from getting into these positions of power. Um, and yes I agree with you I think that it's a very defensive strategy of uh, constantly you know reacting to the Vatican um, and I think we shouldn't forget that there are things happening on the ground you know the Vatican may be against abortion, but many, many countries have actually legalized abortion, including Nepal, where maternal mortality has improved significantly. So you carry on a battle at the international level because it's a way of putting pressure on your own government, but it doesn't stop you from continuing to try and act at the local level. And yes, in this country, um, you know, I think women have performed very well and performed better than men on different levels of education. And so the structures that block them don't lie only in education. You know, I think they lie in the the institutional biases of of employment and politics and so on. But educating women is a good way to start that battle, I think. I mean, I'm not against education. I'm all for it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think think we've got a lot of people who want to come in now. So um, we have uh, Sylvia uh, Wendy at the top, and there's someone in front of... Another one at the top there, and then we have a couple at the back, and then Claire. Uh, And then we'll come back to uh, take another round. Okay, so that was uh, Professor Chant, Sylvia Chant first.
4: Hi, thank you very much indeed, Nyla, for that uh, very stimulating talk. And in fact, there were a number of things I hadn't actually realised, particularly with the OECD International Development Goals, so I'm (laughs) completely illuminated at the moment. Um, I'd like to um, know what your opinion is on the way in which the SDGs are shaping up. I've been reading a little bit around this with the kind of need to have a standalone goal, um, the call to have gender indicators in all the other goals as well. Uh, Now thinking back to what you were talking about in relation to um, Peggy Antropos' critique that the MDGs took us It was almost like a reversal, uh, taking us back in in, in history uh, pre-Beijing. Do you think the SDGs are going to represent a closer alignment with the Beijing Platform for Action, and and could we we use them uh, to a fruitful end?
0: Okay, so at the top there, Wendy, thank you.
2: Thank you for your talk, Naila. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. And I'm pondering one of the things that you said at the end where you were talking about how the feminists uh, were forming an alliance with um, people that were supportive of sexual and reproductive rights. I just wanted to suggest and hear your thoughts about whether they really had any choice about that. If you look back to the history of the various population conferences demographers were instrumental in basically convincing people that the way to get economic growth was to reduce fertility and the wonderful trick that note did where he basically switched the equation so that it was fertility leading economic growth rather than economic growth reducing fertility really changed the stakes so that if feminists were going to actually have a voice and be heard at all they had to be instrumental in their dialogue and that meant basically coming up with a discourse which resonated with the pre-existing demographic expertise so I don't know that it was so much a conscious choice between sexual and reproductive health a liberal feminism versus a more economic rights I think it was probably much more a practical choice based on the surrounding um, funding and, and the 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 current expertise and agreement about what the issues were um, and the reasons behind that are much more complex but uh, I'll leave okay. that to one side
0: and diagonally to the Mm,
1: Left or right,
0: depending
1: which way you look at it. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Hi, Um, thank you for that stimulating talk. I have two questions. Uh, One is I want to know what happens when, um, so as you said, uh, these Millennium Development Goals, some of them have been, the stipulated time for meeting them uh, has been 2015. So what happens when these goals are not met by the stipulated time? Um, And the second question is, um, with, Like when we talk of uh, global scenario, we have such, culture, such extreme cultural beliefs across the globe. Um, I want to know what will it take to come to a common understanding um, of a decent definition of treating women globally.
0: Thank mm. you. And then it was at the back. Yes. Yeah, Dinara. Hello. Thank you very much for that talk. I'd just like to hear a bit more of your thoughts about what you think when feminists engage with the international sphere. Do you see a
1: way of how we could shift the question from why does gender matter among inequalities to tackling multiple inequalities together? Okay.
0: okay. I think mm-hmm. I think that was all I asked for at the moment. I, I will come back to some more another round in a
1: moment. Okay. So we've got um, Sylvia. Uh, so yeah, I'm i'm a little bit more optimistic uh, around this time round if only because this is not happening behind closed doors and because we have got un women and it is very very visible and very and it has the resources to mobilize quite a lot of uh, support and everybody's become more au fait with the mdgs you know people are they know what it means they know what they've understood some of the compromises and so on Um, And I think we've got some excellent people in UN Women, uh, some of the people we know, who are thinking, and I thought what is very interesting is the report that UN Women have brought out on the standalone goal. And they say they've drawn the inspiration for what they've chosen from um, the human rights agenda, from solid research and evidence, which is something we have in our favor, because evidence is often a... You know, it it supports the cases we're making Uh, from women, the lessons of women's collective action across the world, because that has been very important in pushing feminist agendas forward. And There was a fourth one. I can't remember it. But anyway, so I think uh, there's a far more sophisticated um, uh, strategy going on and a lot of, you know, people thinking, which I don't think was the case in 2000. In fact, they were not included in the interagency group, I'm not sure why. Um, And so there may be, and and there may be ways of bringing Beijing back. Uh, uh, Wendy's question, I, I don't know enough about how much was choice and how much was strategy. It is certainly the case that when Reagan was at the population council, I think it was Julian Simon, who he was uh, quoting about fertility, you know, driving economic growth. You don't need uh, family planning, et etc. Et so I think a lot of the population, academic established did not buy that argument. And I think there was a, a strong interest in family planning and contraception. What feminists did I think was give them a language that would unify the population establishment plus the feminist lobby which were interested in similar things we don't know and we do know that at the end of Cairo the commitment was to family planning and not to any of the other reproductive health issues those were going to come from somewhere else so all along I think there was a lot of disappointment at the end of Cairo that it seemed that in spite of the rhetoric around reproductive health and rights and so on, the, the family planning agenda has remained, you know, one of the reasons I think the Western countries continue to support reproductive health and rights. It's one way of continuing with the family planning agenda. But people have to make these compromises and these, their own unholy alliances and so on. What happens when the MDGs are not met? Who was it that asked that question? Yeah. Yes. Well, let's watch. You know, <laughs> we've got 2015. Uh, there will be lots of reasons why, you know, and uh, we'll have to see who the blame is put on, right? Is it the, uh, is it the governments who, who didn't follow the advice they were given or is it uh, the international financial crisis or whatever? So. We don't know, but already we know that they're going to fall short on a whole range of uh, of, um, of the goals. And the common understanding, I think, one uh, positive uh, development is, you know, the MDGs were framed at a global level, and one of the problems with that was, we can say that we have met the goal on halving world poverty but we've only met it because China and India halved their poverty and they're such huge countries that it makes it look like everybody else did. So you can make claims which are not true because at different countries world poverty has not been halved and that inequalities are growing. And the other point of course is by averages and proportions you fail to recognize the progress that countries did make. So if you start from a very low base you know you may not have achieved you know if you, if your mortality rates are really really high and you have to reduce them by three quarters you have a lot further to go than if your mortality rates are very low so i think one of the positive aspects of what might be coming is that you may have global goals but you will look for national adaptations and that may allow us to find ways of a common language around gender uh, because You know, I mean, one of the things about uh, the goal on uh, primary education, which was very big in the MDGs, is it was much lower than what the Indian government had put forward, which was elementary education and higher. So I think if we combine the global and the local, there may be some possibility for greater nuance. And there's multiple inequalities. Yes. I do think, I can't remember where that question came from. Yes. Yes, yes. I think I know I myself have that problem of keeping all these inequalities in one's head at the same time and w- it's why we tend to sort of move towards you know gender as though it's it's the only one but I think we and I this is the point that uh, I think that led Claire Marmont to say you know gender's not the only inequality there are class race and so on and I think it really is the challenge we really have to start having this intersectional approach to understanding injustice. Um, There's a very interesting uh, report that you can download from the Bernard College website where a group of feminists got together in 2007, people who worked on sexual and reproductive rights, people who worked on economic justice to see at least amongst feminists whether we could create more of a bridge between these different aspects of justice. But I, I do think It is a challenge and certainly in all the research proposals I'm putting together now I'm trying to have a very strong intersectional approach
0: okay Okay. Uh, we've got quite a lot of quite we've got hundreds of questions now so um, I try and keep them at the top and the bottom Um, we had Claire we had someone in the middle at the back there in in sort of light brown medium brown Um, we have someone in the back at the top rather in blue Another one at the top there in um, grey and a white scarf from here. And I think we'll take those first. And then if there's any more time, we'll have one final round. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, there was just one more over there. Yes, that was, I was going to include that one as well. Okay, so Professor Hemmings, Hemings, thank you. Thanks very much,
5: Nyla. Um, two quick questions. The first one is, um, I love the way you told your tale. Um, And one of the things I loved about it was the way in which it foregrounds questions of leadership and exhaustion and luck uh, in in the kind of uh, Mm. development of what become... um, global goals that that, that somehow frame Mm -hmm. something at a a macro level but that also terrifies me uh, in terms of what that might mean for uh, feminists taking that eye off the ball or the ways in which certain kinds of moments can have an impact beyond uh, that's more of a comment Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. um, than than a question but Mm -hmm. I think it's important Mm -hmm. Um, and secondly I wanted to come back to what you ended on and you also ended your last response to last question on which is this relationship between sexual rights and economic rights um, it's quite disheartening to hear that those are continu- those continue to be posed as separate partly because in your story one of the things that comes out is that on the ground women clearly are making the connections between uh, the importance of increased sexual rights being related to uh, mm-hmm. increased mm. economic rights mm. and vice versa um, but also because, because you precisely tell a story of, of the ways in which um, not giving people sexual uh, rights is, is, a, is one way of keeping mm-hmm. economic inequality going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wondered if you could return to what you just ended on and, and mm-hmm. talk about um, uh, any, any kinds of ways of linking those that, mm-hmm. that came out of that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, 2007 meeting that you described. Mm-hmm. Cause it, because it seems fairly obvious the ways in which mm-hmm. they're linked, so. Mm-hmm.
0: So where, where, where did I say next? Um, <laughs> no, that there was, uh, yes, in the middle there, in the, in the light brown, and then upstairs. Annie. Huh?
1: And Annie.
0: Oh, then, yeah, we want Annie as <laughs> well. So I don't think she was included. Right? Okay. Anyway, I'll try and fit her in.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and can you please keep your questions brief so that we ha- Nyla has time to answer them?
2: Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I
1: have a question regarding the reproductive rights that you talked about, so in lots of countries like India and China, you have the right to abortion, but you have these, this phenomenon of uh, aborting female fetuses. So I just want to know how, is, uh, it's, how does it not contradict the feminist agenda, and how how can we tackle that in keeping with the right to abortion still there so.
6: And then it was upstairs in blue. Thank you, Nana. Um, I just wanted to echo how important it obviously is to hang around the corridors with Mark Mallet brown no. um, <laughs> I, it, It's something, neither I hope you do a lot of. But um, I just wanted to, to come back to this intersection between the, the reproductive and the productive um, and just how important it is to focus on the economic rights and, and the strategies that we need to develop in order to do that. And clearly one of the things is that we need to form better alliances with those who are trying to challenge the macroeconomic model and I do think that's something that as feminists we we haven't been as good on as we might but I wonder whether the other thing is to identify specific and potentially achievable asks around women's economic empowerment and unpaid care um, which are transformative but which don't appear to be as transformative as in fact they are and are therefore not as threatening to to, um, the powers that be as, as as they should be um, and, and some asks that we can coalesce around because that's something that I think we've managed to do on sexual and reproductive health and rights and haven't managed to do around economic rights so I just wondered whether you had any suggestions of what those might be
0: Okay, and then it was the other uh, one upstairs, thank you Thank you. Um, Right. So my question actually mirrors a bit
6: hers, so it's going to be short. Um, It's related to the redistribution of resources and more into the context of human rights. They've been blamed that they're actually gender neutral. So I wonder what do you think is the usefulness of actually using the right social and economic rights language to achieve gender
1: equality and women's empowerment.
0: And then downstairs in red.
1: Hi, I was interested in your almost obsession with the Vatican uh, in this <laughs> My uh, presentation. My obsession? Well, yes, your obsession
0: with the Vatican, but I mean, you know, is the Pope a Catholic? How are you going to expect progressive developments out of the Vatican? And it really does lead me to question whether the Vatican and
1: organizations like the UN are really the bodies we should be looking to to bring about real economic development, which is what I think is needed in order for women's equality and for men to be lifted out of poverty as well. You know, I don't know that the Millennium Development Goals uh, are the best way of bringing about real economic development.
0: And then, uh, I think the last question will have to come from uh, Annie in green. Um, Oh, you didn't? No, neither neither
1: wanted one. (laughs) No, I I thought you had your hand up. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, forgive me. Okay, Okay. sorry. I thought you had your hand up. Uh, Serendipity, yes, I think... uh, Uh, We were once asked by the IDRC on a a project that I was a part of, which had many country partners, to try and track the research to policy process, you know, we were supposed to disseminate and so on. So we got everyone to write little diaries about how they were going to, and serendipity paid a huge, you know, who you had dinner with, did you meet Mark Ballack-Brown in the corridor, and, you know, in some cases... People had been working for an issue for many, many, many years and suddenly, you know, around the elderly and care in China, they had not been listened to for many, many years and suddenly it came onto the agenda, but that's a very different process. It is, there is so much in policy, I think, that is serendipitous that when donors ask you to, you know, demonstrate your policy impact, I think they should just organize dinners for you with, you know, very important people who you can persuade. So it is worrying, uh, but it is also about networking. I think that's why that there's so much of this that happens. Very interesting story in David Hume's article, by the way, on the MDGs about how somebody met somebody in the car park, and you know, and then the, OC- the DAC goals came into existence. Anyway, not that simple, but something along those lines. Um, but you were talking about the separation, you know, the extent to which sexual and um, I. Uh, to me, there is not, it is not, you know, these, they're as separate as, you know, talking about political, economic, social, and uh, civil rights. You know, you cannot, you need one for the other. Uh, you know, women cannot access the right to abortion without funds. Uh, people are constantly discriminated in the labor market on grounds of sexuality. You know, but somehow I think those connections have not been made as, I may be wrong, but. When I read and certainly looking at that Barnard uh, document, you get that sense that those connections are not being made systematically. And part of it is, I think, and you know, if we think of the alliances around the macroeconomic agenda, the people who do a lot of that are the social justice movements who are not very hospitable to feminist issues and it's always easier to withdraw into your comfort zone and not to have to engage with, with them. But I guess, um, you know, one of the things that Gita said, and I think Dawn has been very good in keeping both agendas in in the forefront. Um, Redistribution of, uh, oh, and and, uh, sort of uh, organizing around achievable things. I think the MDGs are not the place for necessarily very achievable things. You know, they're an opportunity to put big stories onto the agenda, but in trying to translate them into practice, I think a, a lot of it does does begin with a uh, much more pragmatic agenda, you know, what can be achieved, and, but, and there are also some things that have enormous transformative potential, like infrastructure around women's unpaid care workloads, which are not threatening, you know, which could be addressed by all kinds of uh, uh, national governments and local governments and so on. So I think, you know, achievability in certain contexts may mean a far more pragmatic approach than others. Uh, On the Vatican, um, you know, everything you read about this has been about the struggle with the Vatican. Not the Vatican alone, but in alliance with these others. Uh, and so, my issue is why does the Vatican have the special status? You know, I think it should not have, it should be disestablished from the UN. It should be, you know, it does not represent any kind of uh, particular polity. And I think if it was treated like any other religious group, it might not feature that much within the uh, kind of conversations that we're having. Uh, is the UN the best place? Um, I don't know where is. it uh, is. I think, you know, we look at our governments, some of us, and we feel very hopeless, and then we look to the UN as a way of putting pressure on our governments. Other, people's, other people may find that their own governments are very progressive, or their civil societies are very progressive, and I think one of the reasons why so many feminists have focused on the UN is what uh, Kekin Sikkim called a boomerang strategy that you use the UN to put pressure on your own government because it's in your own countries that you want to make a change. Uh, And that's what the UN is useful for. It is a global forum. People from different countries come. It's a place to put your arguments and be heard. And you don't quite get that level of leverage if you are a a, a very weak feminist movement with a very uh, undemocratic and powerful government. So I think one of the reasons for for, for engaging at all with the UN is probably because of that.
0: It was just a question on
1: reproductive rights and sex-selective abortion. Ah, yes. Um, Reproductive rights and sex-selective abortion. Um, It is a very difficult one um, because clearly the idea of using your right to control your own body as a way of perpetuating uh, a very patriarchal set of values is problematic. Um, I know that uh, people have been in India and so on, have been trying to ban uh, the use of the technology to try and, you know, to tell what the sex of the fetus is. Um, And in Bangladesh, we've done research on this and we find that a lot of doctors don't reveal the, the sex of the fetus and people somehow accept it. But those are all interim measures, you know, I think the real measure is, the real challenge is how do you change this discrimination against the girl child. Um, and Korea has turned it around, South Korea, sometime in the late 1990s after being one of the pretty, you know, leaders on this sex elective abortion. Uh, And I haven't read a very satisfactory account of how that happened. And when that comes, I think it may offer us some, uh, you know, some kind of uh, ways forward.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, so I'm sorry there's no more time for questions. Um, It just remains for me to say, uh, to remind you to come to our reception in the Gender Institute, uh, to keep your eye on our website for further events this year, our 20th anniversary, and to thank Naila Kabir very much for this stimulating lecture.